Good morning, church. Mark chapter 5, let's get going. Too much to say in too little time. Verse 21. That's where we're starting. If you're new to us or you're visiting today, uh, we're, what we do is we study through books of the Bible here at Fellowship. And uh, so we've studied through Job. We've studied through Revelation. We're in the Gospel of Mark now. We go verse by verse. I will be skipping some verses today in the message only because in order to keep the story going, that's what Mark does, we will come back next week and capture the, the verses that we missed today. So never fear, I'm not skipping a hard passage or anything like that. So, uh, we're, But we're in verse 21. Let's start reading together. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So next week, we'll look at the encounter that happens next between Jesus and the very sick woman that he meets along the way with Jairus when they're going to Jairus' house. But again, today, I want to stick with this story. And so go ahead and skip to verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Telethakumi which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, let's go back to verse 21 and begin to walk through the text today. Mark tells us that Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee. You see the map of the sea on the screen for you there. He and his followers would now once again be on the western shore. Remember that casts legion out of that poor man in the region of the Gerasenes, in the heart of the Decapolis, the story that we studied last week. They're on the southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, but they've gotten back into the boat. They've crossed back over. We're not sure from the text what city or town was his destination. Perhaps he's returning home to Capernaum. That makes sense with what's coming next in the story. However, from how Mark describes the scene, he's barely able to make it out of the boat on the western shore, his home base, his stomping grounds, before he's once again swarmed by an enormous crowd of people. 
This reception is an incredible contrast to what we've seen earlier in the chapter where the people on the eastern shore, the Gentile region, are urging him to leave. Verse 22, we learn that in the crowd there's a synagogue ruler by the name of Jairus. Now, a synagogue ruler is not a rabbi. A synagogue ruler is not a teacher. He was the administrator of the synagogue. Uh, His role, his purpose in the synagogue would be to organize the services and to maintain the facilities, much like maybe a deacon or some churches would have trustees, but someone who is in charge of making sure things happen correctly in order, and they are in charge of the facilities. This was a very prestigious position at this time in Jewish culture. Most likely, Jairus was someone who was very well respected in the community. He would have been devout in his faith and probably pretty well off financially as well. It's also probable, especially if this is Capernaum, where Jesus and the disciples are at right now, that Jairus has had previous contact with Jesus. Most likely, Jairus already knows who Jesus is. Maybe he's already witnessed some of the miracles that we've studied through in Mark's gospel as well as others. And when Jairus reaches Jesus, he falls at his feet, Mark tells us. So certainly in this culture, falling at someone's feet would have communicated one of three things. It either communicates entreaty, we'll get to that in a moment, submission, or worship. Either that person wants something, or they're submitting themselves to that person and their authority, or it's an act of worship. I think most likely all three are conveyed here to some degree as Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus. I'm sure that the other two are intended, but it's obvious from the request that he makes to Jesus that entreaty is the primary motive. This well-respected leader in the community humbles himself before Jesus in order to make an earnest request of him. He needs something from Christ. Now, certainly, not all of the religious leaders of Israel have opposed Jesus and his ministry. And and we'll learn more about this as we go. And, And the other gospel authors fill in many details. We have, of course, Nicodemus that John talks about in his gospel, specifically in John chapter 3 someone who was very high up as a chief rabbi and a teacher of Israel, perhaps as respected as Gamaliel himself. And Nicodemus comes to Christ at night in order to ask him questions. And and then, of course, there's Joseph of Arimathea. And, And between the two of them, these two religious leaders will find out in the Gospels As we study through Mark, and and if you've studied the Gospels before, you know that these two religious leaders, Nicodemus and Joseph, are specifically mentioned as those who risked their reputations in order to care for the body of Jesus Christ after the crucifixion. So the response to Christ's ministry has been mixed in Israel. There are some religious leaders who are 
against him and are seeking his downfall, his dismissal, and even at this point, his death. And there are others who are supportive of him or at least are willing to see how this all plays out. What did Jairus think about Jesus? We really don't know. Up to this point, Jairus has not been a part of Mark's story. I'm not really sure where he stood on the Jesus issue. Probably the most divisive issue in Israel of that day. But we do know that when his daughter is at the point of death, whether he had been sympathetic to Christ before or whether he had stood in opposition to him in the synagogue, he is now in need of a miracle. And he comes on a mission to convince Jesus to return to his home in order to heal his girl. His father's heart wins the argument in his own mind if he had stood in opposition to him. And this father's heart seems to be breaking, and he he has to try, regardless of what other religious leaders may think of him, regardless of the consequences, whether they, they be professional or personal, Jairus has to try to save his daughter. His statement to Christ, if you look at it in the text, certainly does seem to indicate faith. At least at this point, he says to him, my little daughter is at the point of death, Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. That last part of the phrase in the Greek, she may be zothe kaisese, translated literally, she may be saved. Come to my home, Jesus, and put your hands on her so that she might be saved and live. And what does Jesus do here? Jesus responds to this request, and he goes with Jairus. Now, again, on their way to the house, they're delayed. And we'll study that story next week, but they're delayed by a woman who's in need of healing. How long was that delay? We don't know. Mark doesn't give us a, a timeline. He doesn't say, well, when they stopped in order for Jesus to heal this woman, it only took five minutes or it took an hour or it took the whole afternoon. We don't know how long it was. However, though, while he was speaking with that woman still, people arrive on the scene from Jairus's home. They might be family members. They may be servants from his household. Again, he's probably someone of fairly significant wealth. Whoever they are, though, their words are not welcome. It's the last thing on this day that Jairus wants to hear, and it's what he has dreaded hearing. Jairus, your daughter is dead. I mean, we can only imagine, can't we? And especially those of us who are parents who have children, We can only imagine the impact of these words on Jairus. Uh, There there could be nothing worse to hear, nothing more terrifying, nothing more soul-crushing for a parent to hear. I think all of us would agree no one should have to ever experience this horror. And, And then the messenger says, why trouble the teacher any further? Again, Mark does it would be nice if this had been all recorded on audio for us 2,000 years ago. 
We don't know how words are said, and, and we all know that you can say the same exact thing different ways, and it can either be taken one way or another, right? So we don't know how this messenger says it. I interpret this as we don't need him anymore. The teacher has no more use to us. Your daughter is dead. So Jairus has already been afraid. He's already been afraid that his little girl would die. And now this fear is amplified. What will her mother and I do? How will we live if she's gone? However, Jesus hears the messenger's words. Notice the messenger says these words to Jairus. Jesus is standing in close proximity, maybe right next to Jairus. And he hears this message and he responds. Jesus does not speak to them. Jesus does not return words with the messengers. He does not argue with them. His concern right now seems to be Jairus. I would suggest to you that this story really is about Jairus. It's wonderful what's going to happen here with this little girl, but the story itself is about the faith of Jairus. This well-respected community leader has already taken a giant step of faith, hasn't he? He's already humbled himself. He's already come to Christ in desperation. And now it seems like Jesus coaxes him to take another step. Don't fear. Don't fear. Just believe. Jesus says to Jairus, I believe what he's saying to Jairus here is instead of having greater fear, choose Jairus to have greater faith. Don't let your fear grow because of the news you just heard. Instead, let your faith grow. And so he and Jairus do not part ways, as the messengers had suggested, but they continue on this journey together. Don't miss that. I think that's powerful. Jesus walks with Jairus in his pain. He's just received the worst news he could have possibly gotten, and Christ doesn't leave him, as the messengers suggest, but he continues to walk with Jairus in his pain. He stays close to him. I mean, certainly, right? If it were you, I know if it were me, I'm certain that he broke down, he weeps along the way. Was he tempted to tell Jesus off? Mary and Martha did. When Lazarus dies, individually, independently of each other, if you remember that chapter in the Gospel of John, when their brother Lazarus dies, think first, yeah, first it's Martha goes out to meet Jesus. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And she goes out and she says, you know what? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then later, Mary goes out and says the same thing. If you had been here, my brother had not died. Is Jairus tempted to do the same? If only you had hurried, Jesus. If only, because he knew, right? He knew that Jesus stops to heal this woman, 
along the way. And if only you hadn't stopped to talk to and to heal that unclean, sick, poor and we would have been here in time, and my daughter would still be alive. My daughter was only 12 years old. She still had so much life to live. And you stop for that woman who was an outcast from our community? All of this is conjecture on my part. I need to tell you that. I mean, I have no idea if that's what Jairus thought. I know it's what I would have been thinking. I know I would have been blaming Christ at this moment. Why weren't you quicker to do what I wanted you to do and to heal my little girl? Little sidebar biblically here, commercial break from the story. It's interesting to me that Jesus only allows Peter, James, and John to go with them from his entourage at this point. He basically tells everyone else, that's it. You stay here, Peter, James, John, you come with me with Jairus. And and this is actually Mark's very first reference uh, to these three forming an inner circle around Christ, Peter, James, and John. We're going to see this more in the text as we move forward in the gospel. It's only going to be these three at the transfiguration that actually get to meet Moses and Elijah. How cool is that? And see the glorified Christ It's only going to be these three that will be close to him in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the cross. Jesus must have considered what was about to happen with this little girl, Jairus' daughter, to be very special on the same level as his transfiguration and the night before the cross. In Christ's mind, in his hierarchy, What's about to happen with this little girl was that big. And so they arrive at the house and they enter. And the professional mourners are already there. Do you know about this? This is a custom back in ancient biblical culture. You would pay people to come and cry when a loved one died. And that's what's happened here. This actually does serve as very compelling evidence that the child was dead. The little girl was dead. It wasn't just that, you know, she was in a coma or in a trance or anything. She was dead. Some time had passed, and and the mourners were already there. It was common practice in the ancient Near East that when a loved one died, you would hire people to come and to mourn. This was actually teaching of the rabbis. Let me share it with you. They taught that at the minimum, if you were poor, you would hire two flute players and a female wailer. So you'd have two people playing the flute, and you would hire another woman to come and weep and wail and mourn. That's if you were poor. If you were of more financial means, then you were expected to go much, much bigger than that. And so Jairus probably has a room full of people that were there that were being paid to cry for his daughter. Jesus says to them, he walks into this room, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. How do they respond? Well, they laugh at him. They know that she had died. I would love, I mean, do you guys ever feel this way when you're reading Scripture? 
Like, man, I just wish I could have seen this. I, I wish I could have been there and watched this happen. I mean, there's so, mar- so many parts of the Bible I feel that way. But I would love to have witnessed this next scene because of the way Mark describes it. Mark tells us that Jesus put them outside. <laughs> and he uses a very strong Greek verb, ekbalo. It's the same verb that he uses when Jesus casts out demons. Ekbalo. It even sounds powerful, doesn't it? Say it once, ekbalo. <laughs> and Jesus does this to these paid mourners. He casts them out. Might have been like the cleansing of the temple. Sometimes we make that very palatable because we all want to think of just the gentle Christ. Jesus was no joke, let me tell you. In the spiritual realm or the physical realm, it's a guy who was a carpenter by trade, but in that day, carpenter was working with wood, with stone, with everything. He was a stonemason for probably 20 years before his ministry started. And he is very capable of putting them out. And that's what happens. Maybe with words, maybe he had to use other means. But Jesus takes Jairus and his wife, as well as Peter and James and John, into the room where the body of this dead girl lay. And what happens next, I just absolutely love what we see in Christ here. Because Jesus takes hold of this little girl's hand. And he speaks to her. And he says, Talitha kumi. Talitha kumi. This is Aramaic. It's an Aramaic phrase. It's one of the few Aramaic phrases that's written in Aramaic in the New Testament. He says, Talitha kumi. Mark translates Talitha into the Greek for us. I got to go from the Aramaic to the Greek to the English. Are you with me? So from Talitha, Mark translates it into the Greek, Korosion. And Korosion means little girl. So that's why you have a note in your Bible that says, which means little girl. Actually, when Mark wrote it, he wrote Talitha Kumi, and then he wrote Korosion, little girl. But that's not exactly what it means in Aramaic. Talitha Kumi is something in Aramaic that a parent would say to a child, and it actually means little lamb. It's tender, it's loving, it's it's words of affection from a mom or a dad to a son or a daughter. Little lamb. It's a term of endearment that a parent would use for a child. Jesus says to her in Aramaic, wake up, little lamb. We see the tenderness and the lovingness of Christ here. The heart of Jesus is on display for us, church, in this passage. I think we need to step back and remind ourselves, who is Jesus? And so let me remind you who we're talking about here from a whole different level. And let me throw out a lifeline to another gospel author. This is what the Apostle John wrote about Jesus Christ at the beginning of his gospel. He said, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. 
Kaitheos hain hologos, and the word was God. Hutos hain and arche proston theon, and he was in the beginning with God. Ponte di atu egeneto, all things were made through him. Kai korisa tu egeneto ude in o gegonen, and without him there was nothing that was made that was made. That's who we're talking about, church. And then the Apostle John says just a few verses later in verse 14, he says, Kaihologos sarks egeneto, and the word became flesh. Kai eskenosin and hemin, and dwelt among us. Jesus was the word made flesh. He is the eternal Son of God who is the creator of all things. Amen. Who is Jesus? Jesus brought the cosmos into existence with just a few words. He spoke creation into being. He said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. And it was good. He said, let there be a heaven. And there was a heaven. And it was good. He said, let there be land. And there was land. And it was good. He said, let there be plants and animals, and there were plants and animals, and they were good. And then he said, let there be man, male and female, and there were, and it was good. For these were special to him because they were created in their image, the triune God. Who is Jesus? He is Elohim. Jesus is the almighty Elohim. He is El Shaddai. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. He is Jehovah Rapha. He is Jehovah Sekenu. He is Jehovah Nisi. He is Jehovah Shema, church. Who is Jesus? He is the one who shows up in the whirlwind and says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its, where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who is Jesus? He is the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, holy God. And this same Jesus now tenderly, lovingly says to his little lamb, it's time to wake up. So how does the dead girl respond? She gets up and she walks, of course. We just reminded ourselves who Christ is, the creator, the sustainer, the one who holds the very cosmos in his hand, and he says to this child who had died, get up, it's time to wake up. And she gets up. That's all he needs, a word. Jesus restores life with a simple touch and a command. There's no need for incantations. There's no need for rituals. There are no powers that he's trying to control in some way. He speaks from his own authority and out of his own love. Nothing else is required. Let's remind ourselves of why Jesus performs miracles. 
There are many reasons given in Scripture. First of all, he performed miracles to provide evidence for his identity and his message. We have seen this throughout our study in the Gospel of Mark. The miracles are there to give credence to the message that he's proclaiming, to show people that the kingdom was truly coming. He performed miracles for that reason. He also performed miracles because he loved people. And he wanted to help them because he has a heart of love. And how deep and how wide is the love of Christ? I don't think any of us can fathom it. That's what the Apostle Paul said anyway. And out of that heart of love, he healed people. He restored them. He brought them back into community with other people. And Christ also performed miracles, and I think this is why he performs this miracle today, other than the fact that he just purely loves this little girl. He says he performs this miracle to demonstrate that with the coming of the kingdom, there is hope that all things will be made new. When the kingdom comes, all of creation will be restored and renewed. Jesus had calmed the storm already. We saw that at the end of chapter 4. He is the one who restores a broken world. Jesus had rescued legions captive. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 5. He is the one who defeats the armies of Satan with a word. And Jesus now, a dead girl to life, he is the one who swallows up death and victory. Amen, church? And the raising of this girl from death to life we have a picture of the coming kingdom when Jesus will kill death once and for all. Death is going to die, and it's going to happen on the cross. And that part of the story is still coming. But this miracle foreshadows something beautiful. It foreshadows a new life that will be without end. It's another sign of the coming kingdom. And this had been prophesied hundreds of years before this, before Jesus was even born In Isaiah's prophecy, he says, And he will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is that? It's death. It's the one thing that none of us can escape. And this veil is over all mountains, over all regions, over all people, over all nations. But then Isaiah goes on to say, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And in the New Testament, it's made clear that this is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that this new life is secured for us. If you are here today and you are someone who has trusted in, who is trusting in, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation, then this promise is yours. There is a new life that is coming. It is secure. You can bank on this church. Paul talks about it in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. He writes to the Roman Christians and he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Amen? What a promise for us to hang on to today. 
There's no reason for any of us to fear death any longer because we have the promise of the newness of life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul continues to write, for we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, this little girl that Jesus raised from the dead, we can only assume that she grew up and one day she died again. Lazarus, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he lived for a while and then he died again. But the promise for us who have trusted in Christ is that we will experience a resurrection and a newness of life that will be without ending for eternity, abundant and eternal life. And so we don't need to fear death, brothers and sisters, because one glorious day, Jesus, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, holy God, the creator and the sustainer of the cosmos, from his own authority and out of his own love, will tenderly and lovingly say to you, Talithakumi, little lamb, it's time to wake up. I think we've got sometimes a distorted view of this life and the life to come. And it's not anybody's fault other than those of us who teach this stuff. But I grew up in church believing what I like to call Bugs Bunny theology. It's really more Roadrunner theology, but the cartoons were always all together. So you know what I'm talking about here? Poor Wiley Coyote. Do you remember him? Some of you are thinking right now, he's lost his mind. Where is he possibly going with this? But Roadrunner would be, get to the cliff's edge. He had good breaks. Wiley couldn't stop so fast. And he'd be chasing after Roadrunner, and he'd go right off that cliff, wouldn't he? And if you, those of you who are as old as I am or older, you remember these cartoons, and Wiley would go off the cliff. There'd be a little puff of smoke. And then what would we see next in every cartoon? Wiley would be floating up to heaven, strumming a harp with angels' wings, because heaven will just be us floating in the clouds, singing a mighty fortress for millions of years. And I got to tell you, I'm a little guy sitting in the church, and I'm thinking, that doesn't sound so good. I mean, I knew it was better than the alternative, because the alternative scared me to death. But I'm thinking, that's heaven? This kind of dreamy, ethereal, I'm just kind of floating in the clouds, strumming a harp, singing the same song forever and ever and ever and ever? No. Church, let's get that out of our minds. That's, that is a complete reversal of what we are going to experience one day. This is the dream. This is the shadow And one day we will wake up because one day Jesus will say to us, Talitha Kumi, little lamb, it's time to wake up. And we will know real life at that time. 
We will know abundant life that will last for an eternity, a real existence. And we'll be like, what was that? What was that dream I was having? What was that place? I don't know. I don't care. I'm just glad I'm here. And we will know reality for the first time. The shadow will fade away and will come into the light. We're told in the book of Colossians, just two more passages and, and, we'll, and I'm done. Worship team, get on deck here. We're told in Colossians, Paul writes and says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. This is where Paul is of this. This is how sure he is and how sure he wants you to be. He says, you've already died and your life is hidden with Christ. He's talking to Christians who are still alive, but he's saying it's as good as done. Bank on it. It's certain. Your life is already with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. He writes to the Corinthians, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when one day all of this ends and we take on the imperishable, the immortal body, immortal puts on immortality. It's what he says next. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up. In victory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful today for this wonderful promise that is ours in Christ Jesus. We are so thankful today, Jesus, for what you have accomplished for us on the cross. And, and we think about this story and the love that you, the almighty, eternal Son of God, showed for one little girl, your little lamb. And how you tenderly said to her, it's time to wake up, Lord. And we think about that picture, how that foreshadows what will happen for each one of us who is trusting in you for salvation. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving us that much. Thank you for securing our redemption. Thank you for securing our salvation. Thank you for securing our eternity with you in heaven. Because Jesus, you are the greatest prize. And we cannot wait to see you face to face. We pray this in your name. Amen.